So good evening, um, and thank you so much for coming uh, to the Pratt Library this evening. My name is John Dewitt. I'm the Assistant Manager of Business Science and Technology Department. We have the animal books. So because there's a dog, um, I'm here, and um, you know I'm thrilled to uh, to be here this evening. So the best memoirs tell us something we didn't know about the person who's written the book. And they're interesting to us from that point of view because there's something private, something we haven't seen, something we wouldn't discover ourselves. But they also tell us something that's universal and they connect with us because they point to something in our own experience that we can think about and pay attention to. And this book does that amazingly and remarkably. The other thing that this book does incredibly well and it's a pun, and I apologize. But it, it tells us straight out that even when every day is literally a walk in the park, it isn't. Right? That things, everybody we meet, everybody we see is working hard and, and dealing with things that we might know nothing about. Um, this is a remarkable book. It's a, a great memoir. If you haven't had the opportunity to read it, I would encourage you to read it. Um, I'm thrilled that. Janice Gary is here with us this evening to talk to us more about it. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Thank you. Well, Short Leash, a memoir of dog walking and deliverance, is about two short leashes, one that I was on and one that my dog had to be kept on. Um, and we'll... Talk a little bit. Who's read the book besides John here today? Oh, okay, great. Um, so that's that's the thing. That's the short leash, and um, the dog is Barney, who was a lab Rottweiler that I found in a Piggly Wiggly parking lot in Savannah. Um, stray and uh, super sweet and super big. And um, he was about 50 pounds as a six-month-old puppy when I found him. And I knew he'd be even bigger, and that's why I wanted him, because he was sweet and he was going to be big. And I needed to walk with big dogs because of what had happened to me when I was younger. So um, I'm going to start actually from the prologue, which is at, right after I found Barney. It's our pretty much our first night walking together. Savannah, Georgia, October 1991. Forty-five pounds of muscle and fur pulled me down a dark road with no sidewalks, no lights, and barely any shoulder to speak of. The dog was a stray I had found three days before, a smelly, exuberant hulk of a pup who'd captured my heart the moment I saw him. I paused for a moment and reeled the cord in just enough to keep us in the beam of my husband's flashlight. The dog stopped straining and walked by my side. Good boy, Barney, I said, even though I was pretty sure he had no idea what Barney meant. We walked into the night, past the ranch-style houses, past the sewer ditch filled with singing frogs, around the bend where the road curved and the shoulder widened. Once again, the dog pulled ahead, testing the limits of the retractable leash. I pressed the button to stop the cord from reeling out, but as my thumb hit the lever, the coiling unit fell out of my hands and bounced against the pavement. The reel began spinning wildly, 
gobbling the cord faster and faster until it reached Barney's heels, startling him so much that after a sharp yelp of surprise, he took off like a rocket. I ran after him, but he ran faster, terrified of the plastic monster clattering behind him like a string of Chinese firecrackers. I could hear Kurt laughing behind us. It's not funny, I said. Maybe it would be if I wasn't so terrified of the dog getting hit by a car. Finally, I got close enough to step on the bouncing unit. As soon as I scooped it up, the line began unwinding again. I grabbed the cord and pulled back hard, reeling Barney in like a big fish. For the rest of the night, I kept that leash locked in tight, afraid of what would happen if I let it go. You cannot reason with a dog. I wish I could have told him that the faster you run, the louder it gets, that it's nothing, really, only a square of plastic containing a cord, but you can't explain such things to a scared animal or a scared person. Nothing is more terrifying than the ringing steps of an invisible pursuer. How loud is a ghost? Let me tell you, as loud as a firecracker, as loud as tin cans tied to a dog's tail louder than a scream, as loud as time and memory can make it. So the first chapter takes us now 10 years later, October 2001 in Annapolis, Maryland. So Barney is 10. I'm 10 years older than I was when I found him. Um, and I have a dog who was the friendliest, funniest guy I'd ever met. And then when he was about a year old, I brought him up here to Canton Waterfront to visit my sister, and we were taking a walk, and a German shepherd that was loose with some boys attacked him. And from that time on, he became dog aggressive. He would not even, I mean, this 95-pound Mack truck of a dog, you know, and a dog would come near him that was friendly or whatever. It didn't matter. As soon as he'd enter the circle of doom, boom, he'd have him on his back and there would be damage. So I was terrified of walking anywhere where there would be other dogs. So I had to walk with a dog. And now I couldn't walk with this dog. I had to walk, couldn't walk with him, but I couldn't walk without him. Um... And I guess I need to tell you that the reason I had to walk with big dogs is when I was 19 years old, I went out to California to become a rock star. And um, I was walking down the streets of Berkeley one night and was pulled off the streets and um, attacked and raped. And ever since then, um, I couldn't walk alone without... <laughs> without a dog by my side. So, um, now I have this dog that is dog aggressive. So what am I going to do? You know, I'm looking out for people. I'm hypervigilant. I have PTSD, which I did not know. But I had it. That's why I needed the dog, because if I hear anything, it, post-traumatic stress disorder, you're hyper-aroused, you're hyper-vigilant. If you hear anything, for a vet, if they hear a firecracker and it sounds like a bomb, they immediately go into response. For me, 
a little more subtle. I'm out in the world. If I hear somebody behind me, I'm immediately on alert. So, um, actually, I'll read this part that says, so, so, um, we moved to Annapolis after moving from Savannah to Washington, D.C., and then Annapolis, and there's this park that's a mile away from my house that's very beautiful, and everybody takes their dogs there, which is why I don't go near it. But after living there about a year, you know, I think, I mean, I had come to a point where I'd done an awful lot of work. There was more than that attack that I had to deal with over the course of my life. Um, you know, I didn't have an, an easy childhood and I spent a lot of time healing that. And I think I had gotten to the point where I was ready to walk back into the world. That's how I always see it. That walking into the park. So I decided to take this dog to the park and it was like, a decision to stop walking on the edges of the world, to stop walking in these vacant lots, school lots, empty baseball fields. Uh, there's a wastewater plant in Annapolis I used to walk them at. I was tired of walking around the edges. And I guess, um, I was actually thinking about this because I didn't put it in the book. But I remember walking in this one place where... I'd see needles and, you know, beer cans and things like that, and even homeless mattresses. But one time I was walking, and I saw some underpants in the mud. And I think that did it to me, you know. I think I thought, this is just too dangerous. I've got to stop. So I brought him to the park. Walking a dog in a park should be simple. But for me and Barney, there's nothing simple about it. We're handicapped, the two of us, in ways that are invisible. To see us walking down the road, you'd never guess that the smiling black lab at the end of the leash is a fur-covered time bomb, or that the athletic-looking woman behind him is incapable of walking without a four-legged crutch. There would be no way of knowing that if a dog comes too close to Barney, he turns into a killing machine, or that if I find myself in an isolated area or an empty street late at night, my mind enters a war zone where the enemies are everywhere and nowhere. Barney sticks his head between the bucket seats and gently nudges my shoulder. All right, all right, I say, I get the message. He's the reason I'm here, after all. I stash the keys and a canister of mace in my pocket and reach back to hook the leash onto Barney's collar, as soon as the door opens, he leaps onto the tarmac, pulling the retractable cord out to his full length so he can anoint a small bush at the edge of the lot. We set off in the direction of the picnic tables, following the tree line abutting the meadow. While he runs as fast as the leash will let him, I move slowly, straining to catch any sound that will indicate the presence of a person or a dog. Bird calls float through the air. Leaves scuttle across the ground. We're alone, at least I think so. No one else around except for me and my dog-shaped shadow. So we walk a little bit in this park. And um, when we're coming back to the car, I'm about to pull the keys out of my pocket to head back when I'm stopped by the slow-motion dance of a leaf in the wind. Even though the sky is cloudy, 
even though the leaves are yellowed and dull and beginning to curl at the edges, there's a profound beauty to this place. As I stand there, I hear branches dropping, squirrels running, and something else, something I haven't heard for a long time, the sound of silence in my head. For a moment, I drink in the quiet like water, like a woman who has been thirsty for ages. The wind washes over the leaves, a great wave signaling something coming. Not a bad thing, not a good thing, just change. So we're about ready to get to the car because Barney keeps wanting to stay and I keep wanting to go. And he pulls me over to this tree line. And then he looks at the woods, then at me, his eyes pleading, telegraphing the words he cannot say. There's important information here. We must go on. Any of you have a dog, you know that. No, this is important. He's trying so hard to be understood, I can't refuse him. Despite my doubts about moving away from the meadow, I let his leash out and follow along. While he stops and sniffs a fringe of sticker bushes, my eyes wander into the woods. The wine-like scent of fermenting leaves and earth overwhelms my senses. And before I know it, I'm reeling like a drunken sailor on the decks. To another time, another forest, and the roads and towns beyond it where there were no leashes, no collars, no limits to where I would go. When I was a girl, I dreamed away the whole afternoon in the woods, setting up households and trees, listening to the symphonies of streams, making pretend castles out of termite-infested stumps. I looked into the soft brown eyes of deer before they ran, saw fox, slink into the bushes, watch snakes slither across sun-warmed rocks. When the sound of guns popped in the distance, I was scared only for the deer, never myself. Nearby, acres of apple and pear orchards bloomed in the spring, and when fall came, I picked as much as I could, stepping around the bees that swarmed in great numbers around rotted fruit on the ground. Later, I climbed out of bedroom windows to walk under the stars, rode around town in hippie vans, traveled out west with two pairs of jeans and $70 in my pocket. I camped under velvet skies in the desert, crashed in seedy apartments in strange cities, bummed cigarettes, bummed money, bummed rides with questionable men, and rode off with only the clothes on my back and some weed in my pocket. I was wildly, willingly, stupidly free. And now look at me, afraid to walk in a park with my dog. I'm a woman on a very short leash. So that's how we start our walk. And we keep coming back. Um, That little bit of being able to let down my guard so that I could connect to nature again, which was really important to me as a child, uh, was enough to keep me coming back and it was the thread that really started healing me because the walks I mean Barney helps me move forward but I learn an awful lot from nature in that park too so um, the thing about post-traumatic stress disorder is that not only is it very physical which I didn't realize but it is um You feel it in your body on a cellular level. So your mind, if I hear somebody and turn around and go, what's that? Because of the prior trauma, 
your mind becomes wired in a very weird way so that it bypasses that. Let me check it out and go straight into the physical fear and panic. Um, so, but there's another piece of it too, for me, where, um, I had a second backup, a psychological defense. So it started showing up as I walked in the park because I started to walk further and further. And I ran into it, and this is the part in the book where um, that psychological defense shows up and it's the first time I can stand up to it. Ever since the first day we set foot on this meadow, he's been trying to get me to walk into this path. It's that same path he was saying, let's go, let's go. And I've refused, afraid of what I might find. But as I stand there, the rain picks up and the path looks so dry and comfortable under the umbrella of new spring growth that I move forward into its shelter. Immediately, I'm covered by a gauzy tent of trees, safe and dry. I take another step and then another, and before I know it, I'm walking down the path with Barney in the lead. Barney immediately puts his nose to work, rooting out some smelly thing under a pile of dead leaves. I turn to the forest, waiting for him to move on, and become aware of a crinkling sound like the crunch of wrapping paper in a fisted hand. I'm not sure what it is, though I'm certain it's not human or dog. And because of that, I'm able to listen to it in a completely open way. I realize it's the sound of the ground waking up. What is it about this place, the hush, the singing rain, or the way the two exist in the same space? I keep going. My steps slow down. Time becomes fluid, evaporating entirely. And I take it all in, the rain, the soft crackling, the trees standing like uneven rows of shutters. Certain that no one is around, I breathe deeper, giving myself permission to not do anything but just be here. I forget about my keys and my mace and the need to be aware. My legs feel strong, my mind uncharacteristically devoid of thought. The path turns lightly and then begins to descend. I'm scanning this new vista to make sure the coast is clear when something on a tree catches my eye. And in that split second, before my brain can register what it's truly seeing, the image of a girl tied to a tree flashes before me. Charlie. Charlie was a girl I knew in high school who ironed her hair and cleaned up her acne and transformed herself from plain old Charlene Weiss into a 16-year-old version of Cher. She was hair-flipping cool, distant and quiet, a loner who lived in a small house on the corner of a working-class street. Boys flocked to her, while girls whispered that she was loose, a slut, a girl who screwed around indiscriminately. Then one day she disappeared. Her parents were frantic, but everyone at school figured she had just run away with a boy. Two weeks from the day she disappeared, a hiker found her in the woods in Kentucky, raped, dead, propped up against the tree like a rag doll. When it happened, I was shocked, but I saw no connection to my own life, even though we were the same age and went to the same school. I wasn't loose. I didn't give out. I tried to forget about it, but Charlie kept appearing periodically. After graduating high school, I'd been hanging out with a bunch of hippies who lived around the corner from the bar where she was last seen. 
The bar was a dark shotgun joint on the corner of Macmillan and Vine, barely enough for a pool table. Although I never went in, the door was often propped open, and from the street I could see stringy-haired men playing pool in sleeveless muscle shirts and smell their vomit and beer through the open door. I imagined Charlie sitting at the bar, her long black hair hiding her face. I didn't see myself anywhere in that picture until what happened to her happened to me, almost except for the dead part. And Charlie took on a new meaning, a warning, a red flag, a stop sign on an untraveled road. Usually just the thought of Charlie is enough to make me turn around and get the hell out of wherever I am. But this time I finger the mace in my pocket just to make sure it's there and I keep going. A few yards farther down a clearing comes into view and then a beaten path leading to the second parking lot. I let out a sigh of relief. We made it through the footpath, or at least part of it. It's such a small distance, really, only about 200 yards from the meadow. But to have walked in the woods, to see Charlie and not be stopped by her, feels like a monumental achievement. So things like that are what gave me the ability to keep going. And keep going. And I was just reading recently that, um, of course, now they totally get that victims of domestic violence, c- civilian trauma, um, street crimes can have PTSD. Um, so there's a lot more information about it now, and but it, that really didn't even come out to the 90s. Um, and, and certainly even now, um, they're very slow in connecting it to, to women because violence against women, against women is a very common thing. Um, so I was reading this recent thing on trauma and PTSD and that one of the ways that they deal with it is it's called exposure therapy. I didn't know that, and that you're exposed. So a Vietnam vet or a vet would be exposed to loud noises over and over again in a safe place. And then he realizes it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And basically, that's what this park was for me. I realized that I was, with Barney at my side, I was able to do this exposure therapy so that little things like walking into that park and hearing something or getting afraid and seeing that fear, having that fear thought about Charlie. Um, I ignored it. I'd keep going, and that helped me keep going. And that's how the healing started to happen. And it was very slow. It was over a four-year period. But I kept going further and further and further. Um, as during the... During the period of this book, as I start walking in the park, I start getting off of a lot of short-leash stuff. Um, I'd always wanted to be a writer. I was a writer since I was a little girl, but I never allowed myself to be one. I had to have a career. Um, and I think I started to realize I was afraid to, to have a voice and be seen. And so this was all part of that. Uh, while I walked in the park, I went back to graduate school here at Goucher. Got my MFA. Um, I started writing, um, 
And as time was moving on, Barney started getting older. So one of the other things I had to deal with was now I have this older dog. And he starts having hip problems. Um, And it brings up a lot of... it's, It's really hard. It's really, really hard for me. And it's bringing up a lot of stuff. So... Um, I want to read this part because it's also, it's also about the kind of lessons that I learned being out there in the park. So, um, it turns out that Barney at 12 years old needs an adrenal, an operation for an adrenal tumor. And at first I didn't want to do it because he's old and they can't guarantee it will happen. And I ask well, what do you think? And the doctor says, well, vet says, well, he's an old dog. I mean, I don't know. But I decide to go ahead and try it. And I decide to go ahead and try it, and it's in the book where we're walking, and I can just see how absolutely in the world this dog still is and wanted to be. So I go ahead, and, and I'm doing it. So this is a walk we took right before his surgery. 24 hours before Barney's operation, large wet snowflakes swirl outside in the yard. It's the first snow of the season, and as usual for this time of year, the event is brief and benign, leaving a thin dusting of glittering white stuff on the ground and nothing on the roads. By afternoon, the temperature reaches 45 degrees, and Barney and I head out to the park under sunny skies. As we pass his favorite winter walking grounds, he stops to investigate a clump of dried grass. Looking at him, I'm overwhelmed by the desire to tell him what's going to happen tomorrow, to have a conversation like you would with a child about ready to get his tonsils removed. Barney lifts his leg, a big smile of satisfaction spreading across his face as he relieves himself. Perhaps it's better he doesn't know. I've spent three-quarters of my life wondering about what will happen in the future, and three-quarters of that has never happened. Barney's lucky to be able to sniff a patch of ground the day before surgery and know only the sweet essence of that moment. I try to let go of my thoughts and be as fully present as my dog to enjoy the blue sky, my wiggly boy, the warmth of the sun, but I'm blunted by the burden of what I know. This may be the last time Barney and I walk together. As we approach the gatehouse, snow melts in puddles all around us, and we can't help but get our feet wet. A car passes us, and the driver looks over. We're an odd pair, my dog and I, me and my beret and sunglasses, he with his bad hip and swaying gait. But at this point, I don't care what anyone thinks of us. As we reach the gatehouse, I turn to head back, and I notice two sets of wet footprints stamped into the gray asphalt of the park road. Size five and a half boots, accompanied by wet doggy paws. The tracks left by me and Barney walking together. Within the hour, they will disappear as if they never existed. The Buddha says it's our inability to accept impermanence that causes suffering. Logically, I understand that. I understand that everything is in transition. But seeing those soon-to-be-vanishing paw prints is almost too painful to bear. As we walk down the road, I struggle to hold back tears. Birds sing sweet songs in the unexpected warmth. The sun caresses my face, and for a moment I forget about the surgery. 
It's a beautiful day, one full of the promise of spring, even though we're hurtling toward the end of December. Suddenly I see how much I contribute to my own suffering. Whenever faced with bad news, I immediately brace myself for the worst. I lay down the white flag, accept defeat, keep myself safe by not even attempting to hope for the best. Walking down that road, I try to consider the possibility of Barney surviving this ordeal, and I'm amazed at how hard it is for me to do. Merely willing myself to think this way feels like a Herculean task, as though the thought itself was an immovable boulder. A voice inside says, keep going, lift this weight, admit the possibility of Barney being well. But I can't. In the midst of this struggle, it becomes clear to me how incredibly hard it is to stay hopeful, how strong you have to be to keep your heart open in the face of disappointment. I never understood how much courage it takes to have hope. All these years, I've thought of myself as a realist, smugly superior to those hopeful, faithful idiots, because I knew what they didn't, that no matter what you do, awful things happen. Why even pretend otherwise? On the way back to the car, I start evaluating this pessimism of mine. 30 30 years have passed since the attack in California, and 34 since my father's suicide. In that time, good things have happened as well as bad. I reflect on this as Barney stops to sniff under a pine tree. A car passes us on the road. What the hell do I know? I'm not God or a Buddha or the ultimate decider of anyone's fate. Who am I to say that good things can't happen? Just before we reach the parking lot, I stop and bend down to kiss the the scratchy square patch on Barney's back. You never know, I say to him. We continue toward the car, and I realize the truth of that statement. This morning it snowed. Now it's almost 50 degrees, and I'm sweating in my ankle-length down coat. You never do know, do you? When spring returns, it's possible we could be here. A sway-back dog, a woman in a beret and sunglasses, walking around the gatehouse, stepping through puddles, leaving our muddy footprints behind to bake in the sun. So I think I'll stop here for now. Do you have any questions? I do miss Barney, sure. But... I did keep his ashes, and I put him. I put them in a locket. Okay, this is being podcast, so we need you to speak into the mic. Okay. Did you keep the ashes? Yeah. So she asked if I miss my dog, if I miss Barney, which I do, and if I kept his ashes, which I have. So I'm um, gonna ask you another question. I know it's expensive, but I heard it on TV so many times about cloning. Animals? Did you were thinking about that, or I did a lot ever of cross your mind to do that? I did research. I know you can make diamonds out of out of ashes for either dogs or people, and people are making them into rings now, and there's all kinds of things like that. But you know, no, I thought the the locket's good enough, and uh, and his hair. I got his hair, and I have some of that, and 
what I learned is, I mean, if you read the book, you'll know that I had another dog before Barney who was a wolf husky who was the one who set the pattern of the protector, Sundance. He was the one that protected me right after it happened to me until I was for for 17 years. He lived a long time. Um, And it took me two years to find another dog because I was grieving so so hard for for Sundance. Um, I had a backup dog at the time, which helped. That really does help, having the backup dog. But um, Barney wouldn't allow backup dogs, so I didn't. And I knew I wasn't quite ready, but within two months, I just missed not having a dog so much that I went to, I went looking all around, and I I found this rescue guy. He's, I wanted somebody that didn't look as much as much different as Barney as possible, and I got a black and white boxer pit bull named Winston. And um, even when I had Winston, it it took about six months. For me, for the grief to really wear yeah, out enough for me to um, open my heart to this dog, and I have, and he is seven now, and he's the most precious thing, and he's not Barney. He's as different from Barney. First of all, he doesn't. He's not my protector. He doesn't have to be. He's a happy-go-lucky guy, and he loves people and he loves animals. But it's made me realize um, you can love again. And that there are a lot of people, there's a lot of dogs, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people out there and dogs out there that need the love. So it's, it's worth it to go through it. So, yeah, I miss them, but it's still going on. Can I ask you one more question? Uh-huh. I wish you can talk to my sister because she lost her dog. About five years ago, he had a little chihuahua, lived to be four year, 14 years old. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to talk to her to get another dog, and she kept her dog ashes. Mm-hmm. But I think she was attached to Miss Caviar so much that she don't want another dog. She said that she got so much to do. Now she retired from the school system. And she do other things. She's trying to get her talk show on the road. So I think she's doing that to keep from thinking about Miss Cabrillo. Well, you could read this book and then give it to her. I'm going to get the book. Yeah, and you can tell her that, I mean, this dog, if I could get over this dog because he was that important to me, he saved my life, you know, and turned it around. Um, tell her for me it's worth it to risk loving another dog, getting another dog. And um, and we have some small dog people here in the audience, and they will tell you a small dog could go anywhere. I can't with a big dog, but she could travel. You could you could fly with little dogs. So that's no excuse. Anybody else? Anyone else? I haven't read the book, and maybe you'll touch on this later, but do you think there would have been anything along your path of healing in the park that would have stopped you or, you know, made you stop being open to healing? Um, I ran into quite a few things. Um, 
I don't think so, because what the other thing that I learned, and I was going to read this part, but, you know, I don't want to read too much and not talk about it. Um, what I had to learn, when, when, I, when this happened to me as a young woman, as a young person, um, I was naive, and I had absolutely no skills on how to take care of myself. Um, and so I went 180 degrees the other way and became hypervigilant and a warrior with mace, the keys I talk about in the very first chapter. I've got these keys um, that, you know, were a self-defense weapon. They were so big, and I learned how to use them as such. I went, I went all the way the other way. What I had to learn and what I started learning in this park was that there's there's, the world is not a safe place. But you have to find a middle ground. There is a way to learn how to um, be out in the world and be smart and take care of yourself. Um, so there were times when there'd be weird people or, you know, I'd be surprised or... Um, but I learned how to... So I'm going to say no. I mean, uh, I ran into quite a few... When you read the book, you'll see I ran into quite a few things. And and the really great thing was everything... I started keeping a journal, and everything that happened to me in that park became a, a learning experience for me. So um, I was able to process it in that way instead of shutting it off or running away from it. And... That's, you know, I mean, John has read the book. I think he'd tell you that's in there. I think maybe I'll, I'll just, I'll read this last part and then we can. Yeah. Um, and I, I know John didn't bring it out, but can you let us know? Um, you sent an email about the book. It's, it, it won an award. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. So, so the book just recently won, um, it won two Nautilus Awards. The Nautilus Awards are... Books for a Better World, um, and it won the category of Memoir and Animals, Nature, and the, the other winners have been people like, <laughs> I won a silver award. Gold winners have been like Thich Nhat Hanh and um, Deepak Chopra, and um, Terry Tempest Williams won the memoir one last year. Um, so I was really, you know, pleased. I mean, Terry Tempest Williams is one of my idols, so to even place um, and get a silver medal was really fantastic. And then um, I found out that I just placed in the Eric Hoffer, I got an Eric Hoffer Award for memoir, who's, he's, a, you know, an amazing philosopher and thinker. And, um, and that was a nice acknowledgement, too. I mean, you know, I wrote a little, I wrote a little blog on this because writers, we're, <laughs> you know, we're, we're a basket case, really. I mean, we write because we want to write and we have to write, but we also want to be heard. And then sometimes you have to learn to be really thick-skinned. You get rejected a lot when you're a writer. So to be acknowledged is quite nice. But I also had to learn, because there were other contests or awards that I didn't get, that that's still okay, too. That I don't need... I think the process of writing this book really... Um, it really taught me that I can be a writer, and that was the biggest gift of all. 
so I'm going to um, read just this little part. Hmm. Oh, yeah, here it is. So addressing your question. So Barney and I are walking. I start walking at night. I'm walking, and I usually walk him in the park. He's, he still was du- Well, the other thing was that I didn't mention is that uh, these walks heal Barney, too. That by the end of our walking together, he can let other dogs just go by, and it's like, yeah, okay. Now, whether part of that was because I wasn't afraid anymore and the fear wasn't going down the leash is, what, is very possible. That his idea of protecting me because of what happened to him was to protect me from other dogs. So here I am walking um, at winter solstice, and it's dark. So I'll even be walking sometimes when it's dark, which I never, you know, would have done. Three days before winter solstice, we begin our walk at 4.15 in the afternoon, and by 4.30, the sun begins its descent. There isn't another soul out here, and with darkness about to fall, I can't help feeling creeped out. We continue walking up the road towards my muse tree. The fading light is infused with a soft golden hue unique to winter afternoons. It's the first time this season I've noticed it, and it feels like an old friend has come back. I'm enjoying the light, smiling at the irony of welcoming winter, when I smell something acrid and bitter floating on the air. Cigarette smoke. I turn around to see if anyone is behind us and scan the area where the shark trail runs parallel to the road. There's nothing. Someone is definitely around, but where? I reel in Barney's leash, turn around, and head back to the car, forgetting all about any visit to a muse tree. Once we're safely in the car, I lock the doors, but I don't leave right away. My eyes search the woods, the gravel lot, the empty road. If I had seen the person behind the cigarette smoke, I would have been able to decide whether it was okay to stick around or not. It's the not seeing, the not knowing, that makes me so uneasy. As I look out the windshield, my eyes fall on the red blur of a cardinal sitting in a sticker bush not far from where the car is parked. I sit still and watch him. He cocks his head and looks towards the sky, listening. A few moments later, two crows land near a garbage can in the lot, just a few feet away from the cardinal. The bird moves a few inches higher up the shrub. The crows scratch the ground, moving closer and closer to him. When they're almost in front of the sticker bush, the cardinal decides he's had enough. He flies off, leaving the troublemakers to themselves. I've seen other birds react in this same manner as the cardinal many times in the park. When Barney and I walk by a tree or a bush where the birds are roosting, they simply watch us, remaining where they are for the most part, or hopping up to the next branch. But when I stop and move closer, say to determine whether the small bird is a chickadee or a tufted titmouse, they move quickly away, perching higher and higher until Barney and I cross a line where we become no longer objects of interest but possible predators, and they fly away. I ponder the act of flying away, of knowing when to stay and when to leave. I had no idea of how to do that when I was younger, 
It was like I was blind or deaf, not able to pick up on the subtle and not-so-subtle clues that danger might be present. About a week before I was attacked in California, I was hitchhiking on the streets of Berkeley when two rednecks in an old Cadillac picked me up. The driver wore a ball cap over long, greasy hair. The guy in the passenger seat had a long, scraggly beard that reminded me of the guitar player in ZZ Top. Before getting in, I asked them if they was he- were headed toward campus. They said, sure, that's right where they were going. But once I got in and asked them to drop me off at university in Shattuck, they had a better idea. We're taking you to a party, the bearded guy said. I explained that I couldn't go to a party. I had a job interview lined up at a poster shop. And man, did I need that job. Oh, you can do that later, the driver laughed. Before I knew what was happening, we had pulled off University Avenue and onto a side street. They pulled up in front of a house and told me to wait in the car while they picked up some stuff. The bearded man leaned back and smiled before shutting the door. Don't go nowhere now. I watched as they disappeared into the house. I sat there, actually sat in that car and did nothing. It was like I was numb or paralyzed, not even in my body. They seemed nice enough, didn't they? They said I'd like the party, right? My automatic reaction was to blankly do what I was told to do. I sat there and ignored the the voice inside me that told me to get the hell out of there until it practically screamed at me. Then, and only then, was I able to open the door and run away as fast as I could. For years, I wondered why I sat there waiting. What the hell was wrong with me? Why didn't I get out of that car as soon as the men disappeared into the house? It was only when I read about the psychology of learned helplessness that I began to understand. When people are repeatedly exposed to situations they perceive they have no control over, they begin to behave as if they're helpless, even when the opportunity to avoid harmful circumstances is presented. It's like a lab rat who keeps getting shocked even though he knows, even when he's shown a lever that will stop it. I couldn't do anything to stop my father's violence, madness, or eventual suicide. And by the time it was all behind me, I had been so well-trained that I never even thought of the options I did have to help myself. Pull the freaking lever. Open the damn car door. Get away from that man on the corner. Not surprisingly, studies have shown submissive women are more likely to be sexual assaulted than those who aren't. I didn't think of myself as submissive. I thought of myself as a tough chick, a girl who could do anything and go anywhere. But underneath the ballsiness and bravado was a shell-shocked girl in a trance, a ball of fluff in a flannel shirt and ripped jeans who saw a big bad crow approach and for whatever reason, nature, nurture, or just plain naivete, didn't even think of flying away from a low-hanging branch. Cardinals are small creatures. The male so brilliantly feathered that they can rarely hide completely. But they fly and they forage and they live their wild life among the predators that seek them out. Watching this little bird, I'm beginning to sense that staying safe does not mean shutting yourself away. There are times to sit in the sun and sing and times when the only sane thing to do is to fly the coop altogether. So thank you all for coming. 
I hope you do read it. The book is also in the library system, so here in Maryland. So thank you. Thank you so much, Janice, for coming and sharing.